Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen, and uh, today we're going to be talking about the Holy Ghost and grace. So this is Lesson 9 of the Baltimore Catechism. We've been covering the other lessons here uh, the past few weeks, and now we're going to move on to the third person of the Trinity. Before we uh, get started, remind everyone, please sign up, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, however you follow us. Make sure to throw questions at us. We'll be happy to answer those, and uh, we'll go from there. So uh, getting right into things, question 105, who is the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost is God, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. So we've talked about the Trinity in one of the earlier uh, lessons there. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. But the Holy Ghost, divine, and a key player when it comes to salvation. And often overlooked, at least in terms of, I know, especially on the Protestant side, it feels like they talk about the Holy Ghost as inspiring them to do all manner of things, but they can't really describe consistently what they're being inspired to do or what the characteristics are of this Holy Ghost uh, that they're speaking of. But it's not the same Holy Ghost in the same way that Catholics talk about it. So when we talk about the Holy Ghost, we're looking at the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Um, So the same miracle that happens with the Incarnation, which we covered in the previous episode, is happening on the altar by the power of the Holy Ghost under the request of Christ through the priest. So really cool, all things considered. You actually have everything at the altar with the sacrifice being offered to the Father from the Son, but empowered by the Holy Ghost all the way. So the Holy Ghost is playing a key role there. And when we get to confirmation, the Holy Ghost is also the one who, just like on Pentecost, is actually filling us and then empowering us to make good decisions to learn what we need to learn and then to live our Catholic faith. He's the one who empowers that. It, yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a tough one, man. It's, like, it's a really tough it's one. It's a really tough one. Everybody can kind of conceptualize the idea of God the Father. Obviously, Jesus uh, is a It's a pretty easy one. The Holy Ghost is a, is a hard one sometimes for people to conceptualize. And because of that, like you said, it, he often gets overlooked um, or downplayed. But he is the third person of the Trinity, proceeds from the Father and Son and uh is equal with them he's you know not like a it's not a separate being one not a separate being he's not an attribute of the father and the son you know what i mean like he is that's what we believe he's third person of trinity again it's a difficult one to talk to if you're uh trying to explain it to someone who has never encountered that idea quite this uh, this episode will be difficult so as we're kind of talking it all through here the issue with the Holy Ghost being his role is different in terms of his depiction in scripture, obviously, than Christ. Christ is very tangible. Christ is, you can see pieces of it, at least on the human nature side, are finite, uh, even though when you get to his divinity and trying to understand his sacrifice and what that redemption means, etc. It's like there's a lot more writing on that, a lot more emphasis on Christ than there is on the Holy Ghost. And same with God the Father. The Holy Ghost isn't even really, is not mentioned explicitly in the Old Testament, to my knowledge. Now, he may be there somewhere, signified, I think, in the he temple only. Is. So I've se- in, in the temple, yeah. he's signified when they're, you're looking at the Ark of the Covenant and then the offering at the altar and that kind of, that focus there at the end where we're offering to the, we see them offering to the Father. And then we have the cup, the, the bowl that has the manna from heaven in it, and that's the symbolism for the sun. And then on the other side up there is the menorah, so the actual lit flame, and that's the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost gets depicted as flame, as well as uh, we see the uh, Holy Ghost depicted as a dove when we finally get to the New Testament. 
again, it's an interesting topic, but it's mysterious from the standpoint of we're back into the Trinity again, which was already a hard topic. And then now to start expanding on it, this is what we're going to do with the catechism today. So when we move into question 106, from whom does the Holy Ghost proceed? The Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. This one is interesting in that the Orthodox and so Eastern Orthodox, so this is like Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, all of those who are outside of the, I guess, the allegiance to the Pope in their eyes. Mm-hmm where the schism ultimately is created in 1054. This opens up a whole nother can of worms when they try to say that it was Rome who left them. Surprisingly enough, that's very similar narrative to what Luther actually says. <laughs> it wasn't me who left Rome. Rome left me, which is odd. When we look at the problems with that statement in 106, it's also that's uh, brought up in the Nicene Creed. The filioque. So we'll put a link into the description here to explain the filioque. But the Orthodox make the argument, Eastern Orthodox, that the Holy Ghost proceeds only from the Father. And it was Catholics and a bunch of arguments from church fathers and doctors who reinforcing, no, actually, the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. And what we're looking at is the alignment of the will. So when the Catholic Church is using the Bible, actual scripture, to justify this view. They're using John fifteen twenty six, talking about the Advocate, Christ coming, and will send uh, you from the Father, and the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness concerning me. So in there is where they're showing the Father and the Son actually together, sending forth the Holy Ghost to do the rest of the work that God had envisioned for the redemption of mankind. Brian, you got anything? I actually just think it's it's funny. I was just reading something on tradition uh, this week, and my understanding of the, the Eastern position is simply because the council declared it so, and that's why they were a little hesitant to accept the, the Latin position, uh, despite the thorough reasoning that we have behind adding the filioque to the creed. Uh, but the Church Fathers affirm that the, the Holy Spirit does proceed uh, from Father and Son. It's just the Council didn't declare it such because the threat didn't present itself much later in time. Uh, many centuries later, it was there to defeat that heresy. Uh, but the, the kind of going back to what we, we opened with, this is just very hard to, to identify with as human beings because the Son is a very tangible piece and the, the Father is kind of uh, ingrained in us as children to, to, to look at it father figure through a certain perspective well, but family we're sure. trying to conceptualize the the invisible as compared to the father all of us are familiar we have a dad like when we're born we have mom and dad and so we know who well, our father if, is if so we, we don't have moms and dads we, we see dads out there yeah we, has a dad. either way we, a dad had I to be involved you. i'm just uh, <laughs> just just busting your chops i think for me it is um the, you're right. We can look around and we can see fathers, right? Our own, uh, our neighbors, our friends. We, we see dads and how they interact with their children. That is not, it's not too hard to project a perfect father on God the Father, right? We see a dad. We see where his shortcomings are. It's easy for us to conceptualize what a perfect dad would be, and that's how we view God the Father. Jesus was man. Um, he is the mark. He's essentially showing us the way how to be a good child to God the Father, 
right? So that's we easy. Seen in we've human seen families. in human families, right? That that's conceptualized. It's very hard for us to the Holy Ghost, uh, the Holy Spirit, but I think um, just in His name, like that. That's how we we view Him. Like He is essentially the the strength. He provides fortitude for our souls when we're trying to follow Jesus' example and how to be good children to God the Father. He is the one that comes down and strengthens us if you will, gives us uh, that spiritual resolve in the the realm in which we don't have senses for. So that's that's my, my thoughts on it. And I know it's interesting. I've seen it stated a couple times um, in various YouTube comments or online Facebook comments, the idea of the split between the Roman and the, the Orthodox Church on the Filioque. That doesn't really matter, this, that, and the other. But, I mean, words do mean things. And again, truth is indivisible. So if you start trying to break away this idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both God, the Father and Son, that they're equal people in the same Trinity, neither of them precede each other in eternity. Um, if you if you try to dissect that a little bit down the line, everything falls apart at that point. Yeah, I, I, this is a derivative of the Arian heresy as well. Correct. So you see the Council of Sertica happen. I think it's 343. And at that point in time, the Eastern bishops show up to start arguing their point. The father and the son not coming at the same time. So even though they're arguing that God the Father has no beginning, no end, they're trying to logically say that the son had to follow the father. And they're now starting to contradict the divinity of God. And by contradicting the divinity of God and separating divine persons, the divinity of the divine persons out and starting to come up with all these weird things that are ultimately irrational conclusions in there is where the argument starts to come through. Wait a minute. How is the father sending the Holy Ghost with the son? It should just be the father as their argument and everything starts to come apart. And there's also, I think there's a translation issues there as well. They're talking about on the language where from their perspective, they're reading it in a way where there may actually be some reason with the interpretation of the translation, which has caused the the point to be amplified at that time whenever the filioque was uh, a big deal so i believe the beginning of the filioque was first introduced in spain it kind of gradually made its way west i'm sorry made its way east as the heresy was spreading to the west so we want to also thank the uh, listeners out there for bearing with us brian's calling in on this one so you can comment in about uh, audio quality and whatnot but doing a remote show today with uh, brian outside the studio so Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll move on from there to question 107 here. Is the Holy Ghost equal to the Father and the Son? We've already kind of touched on this item here. The Holy Ghost is absolutely equal to the Father and the Son because he is God. This goes back to you cannot divide divinity. You cannot say part of divinity is different or separated from the other. All the divinity is together. But there are three distinct persons in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and all are equal to each other. So question 108, what does the Holy Ghost do for the salvation of mankind? The Holy Ghost dwells in the church as the source of its life and sanctifies souls through the gift of grace. And this is what I was talking about earlier with the sacraments. So what are sacraments? And I think we haven't really covered this yet, but sacraments are by definition, so Catholic definition here, outward signs instituted by Christ to give grace. And so the Holy Ghost playing a distinct role in the Eucharist, so communion, and also in the sacrament of confirmation. Those are two of the major means by which the Holy Ghost gives grace. Uh, those are, yes, those are the, the sacraments. There, there are other ways for us to, to get grace, but yes, 
the sacrament of communion, confession, confirmation. Those are the ways to uh, remain resolute. Yeah, and I think, too, as we go into the gifts of the Holy Ghost, actually start to cover the things that we can do. And as we exercise those virtues for the glory of God, there is more grace we can gain in doing works of mercy, corporal and spiritual, for God's glory. Yeah, because, again, we're not... There isn't just a, a spatial and temporal battle to be waged here on earth, right? We're, it's not just about this life. It is the afterlife, right? Everlasting, one way or the other. And that's where the Holy Ghost is for us, essentially assisting us, arming us in that battle through the gifts of grace. Yes, after the Catholic, honestly, it, it really it depends on which right of worship is practiced because I, like I, I think I said early on in our uh, catechism series here and I'll reiterate it I think right now there's something on the order of 24 different rites that are celebrated by the Catholic Church so that it depends on the region where you see the Byzantine rite or the Melkite rite or the Chaldean rite etc cetera, etc cetera. and then most of us Mary are familiar Latin. yeah most of us are familiar with the Latin rite or the Roman rite and that's where we see the two different forms of the Mass, the extraordinary and ordinary form, etc. But, but either way, in those other rites, the Eastern rites, you see more confirmations happening at younger ages than we see in the Roman rite. The Roman rite is kind of, at least in the past, we'll say 50 years or so-ish, has kind of shied away from doing earlier confirmations and has continued to kind of push the date or the, the age to the right so that people keep getting older before they get confirmed until now. I have no idea what the percentage is of confirmed Catholics, but I am worried it's probably much lower than... The problem is, I mean, I remember I was confirmed when I was 13 years old, so it's kind of, at least the norm when I was growing up was, you know, eighth grade, that was confirmation year before you went off to high school. Um, But you're right, it is getting pushed back more and more, whether that's a cultural thing, whether that's an active attempt on the part of various clergymen to for whatever reason but it does have a distinctly um, almost protestant feel to it right because it's the same argument protestants have with baptizing babies right they say we shouldn't do it and it almost seems like the only way you can make an argument for not having i mean you're yes you're not fully mature but you're at the age of reason by the time you're you know a preteen. the best argument i ever saw regarding this topic whenever you start holding off sacraments and pushing them back and back and back to prevent those catholics there's tons of sarcastic comments that come to mind with with those arguments but yes go on oh probably it's great and at some point if you just feel like just i'll let my kids grow up and they can decide what rules they want to follow exactly and so this is where i'm going with it (laughs) this whole mess what it ends up doing is you end up creating a situation for all those people out there who are listening to this show and they're not catholics uh, or they are some form of Protestantism which holds off on offering sacraments to their kids. And right now, I'm just, like baptism is the one that uh, at least Protestants still recognize, even though confirmation on their end is kind of not so important. More of a verbal thing. Yeah. These sacraments, the problem is, is that if one waits until their kids are ready to decide for themselves, there's the chance that kid decides never to do it. Guess what happens? Well, one, they never receive the grace up front that would have empowered them to get to the point where they could actually have their own kids and take them into the faith. But you've now cut off future generations entirely from grace. You failed them in in 
one of your most basic rights. I know we're kind of going on a little bit of a tangent here, so, you know, hopefully forgive us, but you failed them in one right by denying them those graces up front, whether in baptism, raising them in the faith to where they're receiving communion, where they're going to confession, where they're, they are ultimately confirmed as they head out as a, you know, adult in the Catholic church. You're failing them because it's not just, how do we say, so Aristotle said, right, excellence is not an act, but a habit, right? So it isn't just a one-off thing to be confirmed. The education that goes along with that, the discipline that is uh, that it requires to make it to Mass, to go to um, altar practice, altar server practice, um, you know, the you are essentially building structure and foundation that will carry them forward momentum through the rest of your life. It's not just a, oh, you know, got you got confirmed. Essentially, you're not giving them the tools. They're atrophy as they're getting older. When they should be getting stronger, they're actually atrophying to where the point when they're 18 and they have no support structure outside of the material help that their parents give them. They have no spirit. They're not armed for spiritual combat. They have no way in which. They can go out into the world and face all of the evil horrors that you face at every single turn, whether you're turning on a radio, a TV, whether you're studying abroad, whether you're just going to the subway downtown, whatever it is, like there's a lot of things that you need to be prepared for. And if you just do this weird one-off thing, like I'll let them decide when they get older, think of how hard that is. I mean, you wouldn't say like, I'm not going to talk to my child. I'll let them decide when they're older, what language they want to speak. Like, that is just well, mind-boggling. You also wouldn't sit there and say, I'm not going to go and feed them. I'm just going to wait till they figure out how to eat. They can decide what they want to eat. Yeah, they can decide if they want to eat or not. It, the whole thing is weird overall. Like, Or they can decide whether or not they want to wash themselves or not. Or like, they can decide what name they want. There's uh, any number of things you do not you do not let kids decide because they're too young to decide. And you, as the responsible adult, decide for them. Caregiver. You the are the, Exactly. You know, I think Taylor Marshall summed it up best by saying, like, nope, you're a marshal. You don't get a choice. You're on the team. You're baptized, you know, like, I'm sure that's a paraphrase. But Moses didn't say, like, all right, Israel, Israelites, through the Red Sea we go, but leave all babies. They need to wait to decide if they want to come. Like, <laughs> you know, well, just... And Joshua didn't do it either. Yeah, so it's like... whenever they're actually crossing the Jordan, he doesn't say, all right, now we're going to go take the promised land. And everyone's going to get out with the babies. Who wants to hang out with the babies until they get old enough to decide? There's a lot of babysitting <laughs> going on back here. It's okay. You'll get around to it. No, that's nonsense. And I think the thing, too, Brian, before, well, do you have anything to add? It's um, It's actually quite... Actually, a few good points. I'd like to just kind of backtrack a little bit. The way I've always kind of conceived of the, of the Holy Spirit is that it's kind of like God front lines. You know, the Father's perpetually in heaven. The Son has ascended. Uh, we receive through the sacraments. But the, the God that you experience one-on-one, day-to-day, is the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And it's uh, it's a tough one to wrap your mind around uh, without some time. You kind of meditate on on the just the, the sheer mystery of the Trinity, like you said earlier, Pete. It's just one of those. It's a lifelong topic, and to deny children, like Christ, very clearly specifies not to keep the children from Him. And since I've been visiting a lot of the Eastern rites, I have to admit it is a beautiful sight to see toddlers, young children, babies being held up, all being 
ministered the Holy Eucharist. It's uh, it's quite a sight to behold, especially yeah, for the, a Latin right guy. I believe it's the Coptics that is part of their confirmation of their children, which is done right around the age of reason, so seven or eight years old. I believe it's uh, they who tattoo a cross between the eyes, essentially, so that they can never, they can never remove the mark that you know they were given. From never, their baptism and their confirmation, they can never, they can never, like, forget. And they can never claim that they weren't either. Yeah. And that arises, by the way, in an area of the world in which Christians are overwhelmingly persecuted and have been for centuries. And that's an awesome, really cool tradition. And to be honest, if we were cool with uh, face tattoos in this country, <laughs> I'd be all about it. <laughs> face tattoo usually says, uh, I like manual labor, you know. Not to knock anybody with a face tattoo. I have a lot of tattoos. I'm just saying. It's not a widely no, it's accepted a, thing. It's a good point. It's a, it's an excellent witness that I think sometimes we lack the, the fortitude or the courage to kind of wear our faith on our sleeves, especially today, because we've all been programmed with that nice, like, American religious modesty where it's just not polite to bring it up or to evangelize or anything like that. But the uh, I've actually had quite a falling out with a particular priest over... Uh, withholding uh, these sacraments because for reasons that are just completely arbitrary or just not convenient, uh, especially uh, during a, a catechism program. It's just, it's a shame that we don't embrace it in the West like the East does because like, I think, I think Jake touched upon it with, you really need these graces going into at least like teenage years, right? When you get into that like wasteland, oh, you know, I mean, not yeah. to get all like, you know, the he tested in the who on you, but the teenage wasteland of, of modern American life, it's uh, yeah. Man, whereas we're before and just left with no armor. sixty years ago, you know, where a ten-year-old boy, I mean, what's he got to worry about outside of you know maybe going out fishing and running around? But now you got ten-year-old boys gonna be given a cell phone that has the internet and every yeah. single sin and yeah. vice is on there. Oh yeah, and glorified, and glorified, and you in every single app, social media, and YouTube, all of that stuff. Um, anything he wants to learn about or anything his heart can think of, he can find on the Internet. It's a portal to the worst parts of humanity. And you don't think it's appropriate to arm him. And before we go on to the next question, I'm going to make sure that we uh, put a stomping point here. None of us, neither Pete, Brian, or Jake, are saying the Internet is bad. What we're saying is that anything usually any creation, honestly, for the most part, um, they're not necessarily bad when they're created. It, it's really, this is one of those things where it is the use of the thing that makes it, makes the, the evil. It's the person's intent and how they're employing the internet. That is the evil thing. But internet in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's just a technology. It's not you know, it's benign. Uh, it's not a, a bad thing. So just to make sure we're all clear. So that, yes, internet's good. Fun's good. Electricity However, is good. Yeah. But when people are using it to do sinful things to offend God infinitely, then there's a huge problem with well, it. And I've, ultimately people, I think suffer. too, speaking of just technology in general and not being innately bad, I think it is important though to realize and to admit that technology has made modern life um, it has given it a standard of living that you have to essentially seek out hardships now 
if you're talking about being comfortable, right? So the, the great, the great idea is, uh, you know, think of a hundred years ago, how much hand washing of laundry had to be done, right? And the, then somebody invents the washing machine and the drying machine. And if you told that to a house, you know, a Catholic family of 10 or 12 people, you know, hey, I've got this thing. You just throw your clothes in here. I wash it and you just throw it in this other thing and dries it and it's good. They'd probably sit there and go, oh, my goodness, how much more time am I going to have? And now look at us. There's not a home in America that doesn't have laundry baskets of dirty laundry that aren't done. Or while they are, you know, being washed, you know, we sit on our phones or we take naps. Like, we don't use the time that we just made for ourselves. Wisely, at least. Wisely. You know? So, yes. Are washing machines evil? No, they are not. If you allow them to make your life easier so that you can go do evil things, well. Yeah. There there lies the problem. So, now that we've gone through that huge digression here, talking about sacraments and grace, why would we care so much about grace? Let's go into those questions here. I know, question, these are going to be great questions. I'm pumped about these. In all seriousness, they are, because this is where, again, this is, huge divergence from Protestantism. That's what I'd say. This is, the, this is probably one of the crux of the arguments with Catholics and Protestants. So I'm going to hit two uh, questions in a row here because I think this will uh, help us. Uh, they move play off forward. each other. Yeah. They do. So first one, question 109, what is grace? Grace is a supernatural gift of God bestowed on us through the merits of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And how many types of grace are there? Question 110, there are two types of grace, sanctifying grace and actual grace. Now here, the emphasis item, I want to uh, make sure to, again, foot stomp. The grace anything that we get, those graces, they are permanent if we remain in a state of grace and we do the atonement that we need to do for the glory of God. Those graces are the treasures that Christ refers to that cannot be rusted. They will not rot. Moths cannot eat them. They will go with you into heaven. Those are the only things that stick with us because they're of God when we would go to heaven. So, Grace is huge. Grace is the means by which all of us can do God's work. This is the means by which we can glorify God. And the only way we get grace is in the presence of God doing his will. And if we think of God as a lamp or a lamppost, this because the C.S. Lewis, Narnia, and that lamppost as they walk in. When you're in the light of the lamppost, that's where your grace is. If you walk away from that lamppost into the darkness where the devil prowls, then the grace goes away. And that's... Kind of the, the thing we're fighting here is that all Satan wants to do is take us away from that grace because that grace is ultimately through Christ. You know, that's his that he bestowed upon us through Mary, mind you, mm-hmm. um, that allows us to do his will and to actually get other people to go and follow Christ as well. Yeah. So sanctifying grace is that grace which confers on our souls a new life. That is a sharing in the life of God himself. Question 111, by the way. So... <clears throat> Right, so we have sanctifying grace, we have actual grace, right? So what is sanctifying grace? That is the grace that essentially cleans our uh, soul and assures us of heaven. Now that does not, there's a, a second part to that. We'll, I guess we'll hold off on that, right? It doesn't necessarily mean a, uh, a uh, there's no layovers on this, not a direct flight. But, um, but sanctifying grace is that grace in which God uh, bestows on us eternal life. 
Yeah, and I, I want to just keep going here because I think the thing we're going to have to do, let's get through questions 112, 113, and uh, I was looking we'll at it too, and I was like, I was looking at it, and I was like, let's just like let's put all these questions out. out here and like let's do it. Yeah. So let's bang it out. So so we just did question one eleven in terms of sanctifying grace, and then we're going to now talk question one twelve. What are the chief effects of sanctifying grace? The answer one, it makes us holy and pleasing to God. Two, it makes us the adopted children of God. Three makes us temples of the Holy Ghost, and four, it gives us the right to heaven. So this is uh, John 14, 23 is what they're using here. Jesus answered him and said, If anyone love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So big deal here. Sanctifying grace, when we're, we're looking at sanctifying grace, um, it's the result of doing the things that God told us to do. So sanctifying grace comes through sacraments. Sanctifying grace comes through prayer. Sanctifying grace comes through penance. These are things where we were contributing according to God's commandments back to him. And that's where our sanctifying grace comes in. This moves us into the difference then between sanctifying grace and actual grace, defined here in question 113, Actual grace is a supernatural help of God, which enlightens our mind and strengthens our will to do good and to avoid evil. This differentiation is where Protestantism and Catholicism diverge. Because, and speaking from experience here, arguments with uh, pastors, Protestant pastors especially, who are very confident in terms of how all this thing works. They know the whole economy of grace and uh, are very confident to say, we can't do anything to get grace, is the thing they say often. You just get grace from God. It's just being tossed out like candy at a parade. They're acting like God just gives it to you all the time. They're saying all grace is actual, and you don't really play a role in it. It's just a fire hose on a summer day. And it's weird, because then the end state here is that you end up in this problem where now we're disagreeing over question 114 of, can we resist the grace of God? And the answer there is we absolutely can resist the grace of God for our will is free and God does not force us to accept his grace. This goes back to free will, which we did talk in a previous lesson as well about. All of this rolled together. Actual grace comes when God says, I think it's time for something to happen and a change. And I'm going to go and say personally that actual grace was given to me in order to get to the point where all of a sudden everything starts coming together. And I was like, I need to be Catholic that factored into my conversion. Because before that, I am not a Catholic. I am not having any capacity whatsoever to do the full good of God because I don't have the sacraments. I'm not actually in a state of grace. A whole bunch of problems. And for some reason, God's like, you know what? I got some work for you to do. Bam. And he lets me see. And these graces shed upon me. And all of a sudden now, I have a choice. I have to figure out now, do I accept all these facts that he gave me or do I go and stick with my pride and all of my poor education that brought me to that point? And at that juncture, my will, my cooperation with God ultimately allowed me to get that sanctifying grace to work my way now into the church and to continue getting closer and closer to God. So, yeah, just to also to be clear for anybody who's who may be confused when we say state of grace, we're talking about under the protection of sanctifying grace. Right. We we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We have the right to heaven. It's um, acceptance of it's doing God's will, the sacraments, mainly Catholics will refer to state of uh, state of grace being in a state of grace as having been to a recent good confession, right? That's that's how we're absolved of our sins. I know we haven't gotten into that, but but I know we're we're bouncing around between sanctifying grace, normal graces. Then we're saying state of grace, 
I just want to kind of make it clear. State of grace is we have sanctifying grace. That means we have the right to heaven. That's what we're talking about. Which is contrary to being in the state of mortal sin. Correct. So those are the two opposite conditions that one can be in, a state of mortal sin or a state of grace. And then to be in a state of grace requires that sanctifying grace that comes from the sacrament of confession. Um, When we have gone into mortal sin, the only way to come out is confession. Now we can, while in a state of mortal sin, right? We've all been there, whether it's converts or reverts, in a state of mortal sin, we can't, we have received in God's mercy. Actual grace. Actual grace. Which has let, whether that's a eureka light bulb moment of just like, huh, or, you know, things are all coming together and and your eyes are open and you're you're seeing the way it is, whether it's your name is Saul and you get knocked off a horse, that's that's God's way of pulling us towards him, Uh, not pulling, I guess, isn't necessary, but nudging us, if you will, um, towards him so that we can receive his sanctifying grace and enter an eternal life. And I know, Brian, your background here from you coming into your conversion, I'm assuming you're going to say something quite similar in terms of your background in actual <laughs> grace and sanctifying. Oh, yeah, no, it, I completely agree. It's all very, I think, similar experiences. And I think you summed it up brilliantly where mortal sin, uh, even, even though that's a, that's a separate conversation to itself, but it really is as simple as a rejection of the Holy Spirit, a rejection of sanctifying grace. Because through your free will, you walk away. Uh, you, can, you can't be a temple of the Holy Spirit and be committing great evil at the same time. It's a binary situation. So a fantastic way to sum it up. So, uh, well, no, well, I was going to say, like, back on to, back on to the, and, and this isn't, again, uh, I know we can be a little bit teasing sometimes, but, you know, this isn't to, to mock any of our Protestant friends, family, or, uh, or what have you. We hope you all convert. Yes, absolutely. But it is a very distinct, it's an important conversation to have. I mean, to logically think it out, to say that God's grace is unending and everlasting, regardless of what we do, regardless of our mindset, of our actions, of our words. And also that your state with God, your your relationship with God is irreversible. So that, well, I, I'm in a state of grace. Obviously, I can't. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. The idea, the idea that I can, it all depends on the, the sect of Protestant. But, you know, a lot of them say all you got to do is accept Jesus into your heart, declare Jesus as your savior, uh, you know, and go get baptized. Right. So it's the whole idea of all a mindset. All stuff. All not. But, but, but hear me out. It's like, so the mindset of I do one action, right? I go get rebaptized. I say, you know, a couple words. I declare him verbally in front of people. And then I have that mindset of I accept in my heart, right? So we have right there action, thought, and word that they're advocating that you have to do, right, to in order to receive it. Now, some say, like, you know, we're just all saved. Like, that's just, that's just how it is. So go forth and do whatever mayhem you wish because you're saved. But for many of them who say that, you know, no... Uh, you have to do those three things or one of those three things, wherever it is. But they're so fleeting. We've all been on that spiritual high where we're just like, man, like I want to bring glory to God. And we've all had that fall where we're having a very bad day where we're being extremely rude, mean, just downright terrible people to our friends, family or to ourselves. And we fall away. How is it that those three things that are so easy to do, right, just go get dunked by a pastor. They don't even water. all believe that. 
Uh, they don't, all Protestants they don't, do not they believe don't, that that's what I'm saying. baptism is a sacrament that is required for heaven, well, regardless and a lot, of the fact that Scripture says so. But a, a lot of them do say that, A, it is required, or B, that it's a symbol that you've changed on the inside, or or it's a manifestation, right, that you have accepted Jesus into your heart. But in any, in any case, whether it's just announcing it, thinking it, you know, going out and doing it in front of, uh, you know, a few dozen people— the idea that something so fleeting as just sitting there in your bed being like, man, my life sucks. Jesus, you are the way. The idea that something that fleeting can have everlasting impacts and that the remainder of your life, right? This whole idea that excellence is a habit, not an act. It goes against everything that we know as humans. Because if we if we just do that one quote unquote act, whether it's thought, speech or, or actual action, however little it is, however little it is. And then we continue on our life down this road of just complete sin, debauchery, drunkenness, you know, fornication, anger, pride, all that stuff. If we continue down that road to somehow think that our one work, which I know is a big word for Protestants, they love it. Our one work in the, the idea of our thought or speech can overcome all the other terribleness that we do throughout our lives is and is and and to be able to persist in it is the thing we've all done terrible things and we can all be forgiven but to think that you can persist after you quote unquote accept jesus into your into your life as your savior and all that um and that it still affects you i think is just it's just illogical and it really is something that we have such a huge disagreement on with our friends and family that we all, the three of us know, but it's something that we, we have to talk about. And they ha- God's, go ahead, go ahead. God's not okay with you as you are. And although that people will sit there and say, well, God takes you as you are. Yeah. When you're coming to him, <laughs> how'd that work out for Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. You can come to, well, or Judas, you can come to him yeah. in whatever terrible state that you come to him in. But if you decide when you're there, you're like, nah, screw it, man. Then boom, reject it out. This is where the this is the home stretch on the questions is but, actually but like if you if you take Judas Peter and and Paul right Judas betrays Jesus goes and hangs himself Peter denies Jesus betraying in another betrays way. him in a, in a different way when he has no other friends Paul actually is party to the first martyr of Christ of Saint Stephen you know persecuting Christians and is actually on the way on the way to Damascus to murder to more. murder murder more but only one of those is not like the other right because Peter and Paul had to repent and continue to live that way in their state of repentance right right they had to go forth the the evil that they'd done in the world they had to then counterbalance with good works and and penance you don't get to just be like, oh man, I messed up, Jesus. Don't okay worry, you're. Yeah, he'll be, I have. I've talked to him, and he knows. Yeah, he knows I'm a good person. Then it goes that whole idea of being able to, um, your state, your the state of your more um, immortal soul, being able to separate that somehow from the the your physical actions, which is what people love to do. That that weird cognitive dissonance of the idea of, I just did terrible things, but I know that deep down that's not who I am. Which I'm not going to get super psycho, uh, psychological on that whole thing. I love listening to people like Jordan Peterson talk about things like that of, uh, and Carl Jung and all, but whatever. But the idea that you can sit there and go, <laughs> the idea that you can sit there and go, um, yeah, I've done all these terrible things in my life, 
but I know that deep down that that's not a reflection of who I am. Well, what you do, what you think, what you say, and what you do kind of become who you are unless you think, say, and do differently. Like, that's, that's really what it comes down to. You know, this idea of you can, God gave me his grace and I had nothing to do with it and I can never struggle away from it. And he's just this big old man up in the clouds covering me in a snuggie of his love and I'm struggling to get away, but he's going to take me up to heaven anyways. Like, that doesn't make sense and it's foolish. All right. Sorry to ramble. Cut out as you will. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great points. I just like to point out to our Protestant friends that if St. Paul was saved, why did he have to work it out constantly with fear and trembling? Well, and he talks about how he has to make up in his flesh for everything that Christ's sacrifice didn't make up, which means there's gaps in there that after you receive redemption from Christ, it's not permanent, especially after you sin again. And when you start adding additional damage over and above the amount that Christ allowed you to kind of get back and get compensated for, redeemed regarding your previous sins prior to baptism, and then you just decide, yeah, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to waste this. I'm going to do whatever. Like, There's a whole nother set of things that have to be done here. And this is why, if we go into the home stretch here, uh, question 115 and 116, let's go with why is sanctifying grace necessary for salvation? Sanctifying grace is necessary for salvation because it is the supernatural life, which alone enables us to attain supernatural happiness of heaven. And then we'll go in for actual grace as well. Question 116, is it necessary for all those who have attained the use of reason? Actual grace is necessary for all those who have attained the use of reason because without it, we cannot long resist the power of temptation or perform other actions which merit a reward in heaven. So we need it. If we don't have it, we are not going to be able to do what needs to be done to align ourselves to God, to work with him and in him uh, in order that we may be like him. It's that simple. That it's grace is the only way. This is how Mary did everything she did, full of grace. This is huge yeah. in, in terms of why Catholics look at her. No one else other than Jesus and Mary were referred to as full of grace. Think of, think of the... Think of all the, you know, not to get into relics or anything like that, but think of the idea of like how precious Jesus, his blood is. And I mean, it's so precious. It's so, it's so sanctifying um, that was it St. Longinus that pierces his, his side, gets sprayed with the blood and the water and converts. So we're talking about you just, question one was 113, 114 that was asking, do we need sanctifying grace to, to be saved? Guys, what would you say to a Protestant who's saying, but I thought Jesus' sacrifice redeemed us from mortal sin? That's question 115. Right? So, so, so how, do we, how, do we recon, how do we as Catholics reconcile that question? Because for someone who's never been taught it, it's a, it's a good question, right? It so is. What do, you, what do you all have to say about that? Sanctifying grace versus, as they would like to portray it anyways, versus Christ's sacrifice. Well, and the thing is, is that it's part of the sacrifice. So actual grace and sanctifying grace both come from God. The difference is, is actual grace comes whether we wanted it or not. It just kind of hits us in the face. But sanctifying grace is when we actually cooperate with the will of God. There's nothing that we're going to get that is good unless we are actually completely 100% aligned to the will of God. That's just the way it is. The struggle that we have, that struggle that, Brian, you mentioned regarding Paul, 
is completely in line with his ability to go get sanctifying grace so that he can get closer to God. Sanctifying grace is the sacraments. If we do not take the Eucharist, we will not get to heaven. This is John 6. This is what Jesus says to us. Because of the grace, we have to be with him so that we can actually get that grace. Um, if we're looking at confirmation, if we're looking at marriage, if we're looking at baptism, just keep going through all the sacraments that are there. All of those sacraments are giving us grace. If we don't do the things that Christ said we need to do to get grace, and these are all scriptural people. This is not something that the Catholics just made up and they just, you know, in the 12th century, they wanted to just rule everybody. So they started telling people, do these random acts and then it's going to be good and you'll be in our care. No, it wasn't about power. This is about Christ saying, if you really love me, you're going to bear your cross with me. If you really love me, you're going to do everything I commanded you to do. Matthew 28, 20. Seriously, folks, like if he's going to tell us, go do these things, confess your sins in public, which he says multiple times. If he says, go and be bathed in water in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost, we probably should do that since it was actually a commandment. And if he says, eat his flesh and drink his blood, we should probably do that. Marriage. He says marriage. That's a thing too. We have to do exactly as he commands. There's no way around it. And that's the only way we can get sanctifying grace. Yeah. I mean, and even actual grace, right? Even just... I mean, it was in the Auxiliary Christianorum prayers, blood of Christ, courage of martyrs, pray for us. You know, I mean, it's just like, yeah, we like are, that's what actual, actual grace, right? And it goes back to the Holy Spirit that you don't get the strengthening resolve of the Holy Spirit to undergo terrible hardships that may be martyrdom if you're not in a state of grace. If you do not have sanctifying grace, you're not going to get that extra help to bear the cross as Christ did. And, and Catholics absolutely admit that we need grace in order for anything good to happen. We know that grace happens whether we want it or not from the actual side, but there's also the grace we cooperate with. Overall, we're making the distinguishing line between the things that God just does because he says it's time to happen, whether you want it or not, and the things that he says, well, if you want me, you're here's make the bread. Choice. You got to you got to you got to eat the bread that I've given to you. Yes. You know, it's uh, and again, that's it goes back to the idea of agreed. We we believe that grace is absolutely necessary because there's the only way for us to do any good in this world is to align our actions to the will of God. So if you guys are ready to close this one out with an awesome set of controversial questions, let's do these last two because they're going to be awesome. Question 117. What are the principal ways of obtaining grace? The principal ways of obtaining grace are prayer and the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist. Now, we've talked about that a bunch, but the kicker here is question 118. <laughs> the last question of the lesson, how can we make our most ordinary actions merit a heavenly reward? And the reason I emphasize merit, going back mm. to the arguments that mm. are had between Catholics you don't merit anything. <laughs> and Protestants in the they don't understand this piece. And I don't mean the individuals. Again, when we talk about Protestants, we know many Protestants. And as we say Protestants, the thing we're looking at are the multiple denominations that all have their own views about everything. It's each denomination says this or that regarding grace and all those types of things. We're trying to make sure we emphasize here that these are the belief systems that have been handed to them and taught to them. Or if you are a Protestant out there listening, this has been taught to you. And we're trying to make sure you're aware scripture actually does not agree with the Protestant views on grace, period. And done. And so the answer to question 118 with the scriptural backing here, 
we can make our most ordinary actions merit a heavenly reward by doing them for the love of God and by keeping ourselves in the state of grace. This is supported by Paul's writings. And I know Paul is one of the ones they use most to try to sit there and act like faith alone. Thanks, Luther. And all those kinds of weird heresies. But what Paul actually said, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or do anything else, it sounds almost like a work, do all for the glory of God. Also sounds like a work. That's not faith alone. And when he talks also in 1 Corinthians, the one that is always used at, at uh, weddings, the one about love, love. charity. Love in is there. kind. Love is patient. Love is bored. Wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to, I'm going to look this one up because uh, this one's really important. He literally says faith is second to charity. And we have to remember that <laughs> what is true charity? It's a work. Almost like what Christ did in his passion and the cross. It was a work. True love is work. True love is sacrifice. We are not talking about taking here or getting or feeling all warm and fuzzy in the butterflies. No, this one is how, how, work. The, uh, the whole point of all this, if they haven't skipped ahead, is to kind of turn into Christ. You have to reflect God back to himself. All good comes from God. We're enabled by God to do good because on our own we can't do it. Through the sacraments, through the sanctifying grace, through actual grace, that's how we start to reflect him back to himself and start to change who we are. Yeah. And I think we we kind of lose the forest through the trees sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, especially with uh, the, the larger topic of the Trinity and grace. But the whole point is for us to die and for the new creation to arise, the, the new self. And this is how God enables that. This is the vehicle to salvation. Yeah, it's like, how can God be all just if if we get to heaven unmerited? I mean, that's like being like, I mean, I know it'd be awesome to like be born into like a billionaire household and just be crazy wealthy. But, you know, that's not really how it works for most people in the world. So, I don't know. I just, the whole idea of you can't merit anything is... Yeah, it's difficult to take because it wasn't faith that Jesus said, I guess that Jesus displayed. It wasn't faith that Jesus displayed. It wasn't faith alone, like Luther says. He can't sit there and say, be in Christ and be like Christ and do all these things like Christ if it's faith alone because Christ never needed to display faith. Yes, he commanded faith and he commands hope that we will make it to heaven, but his primary commandment was not have faith in one another. It was love one another. And in the end, love is also synonymous with the other word, charity. And if we read our Bible and we end up going over into... Love's a, an action too. Love's a work as well, right? Love is a work. And when you go look at 1 Corinthians 13 too, If I should have all faith so that I could move mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And again, in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I have not charity, it profit me nothing. And he talks about all the good things he could do. But if he doesn't actually love anyone, and this is where we would agree that with Protestants on at least this point, if I do a work just for the sole purpose of being completely superficial about it, because I'm the Pharisee in the temple saying, oh, look at me doing penance, and oh, look at me helping all these people, and see, can't you tell I'm a great person because I did all these works? 
that is where every Catholic is supposed to agree with you Protestants and say, you are absolutely correct. That is a useless work, and actually it is a mocking work, and now it is actually sacrilegious. We are now creating well, problems it can't be with a good us work, between God. It's, uh, yeah, because it's not aligned, that work. It's obviously. rooted in vice. Yeah. The, um, they would never dare to say that about our Lord. He fasted for 40 days. He healed the sick. He suffered for people. It, it's just there There must be works accompanied by faith, and he demonstrates that through his entire life, especially within the three years of his ministry. Yeah, he didn't just, like, walk around giving, like, self-help lectures. And I think, yeah, fist bumps and just good, like good feelings. Circle. Like, he went around and, I mean, he walked in the desert, was dusty, hot, hungry, working on boats, sunburned. Like, he was, his ministry was hard work. And in the end, what do we call that? Charity. This is what a husband does for a wife, is charity. And to be perfectly honest, what do we also refer to Christ as? The bridegroom. And who's his bride? Church. The Catholic Church. The universal church. He gave everything for her. And anyone who is in that mystical body of Christ receives the graces of the charitable work, the most charitable work ever offered, because we're members of that church and we keep ourselves in a state of sanctifying grace. To close out, I'm going to, again, foot stomp it. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now there remaineth faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Because, again, the greatest thing we've ever seen any man do is that sacrifice on the cross. So we're going to remember that. We're going to remember that as we move forward into those next lessons here. Uh, I think we've covered a lot on the topic today. And uh, next lesson we'll be moving into our virtues and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. I think if there are, if there's anybody listening that has a, a rebuttal, any of our Protestant friends, or if there's anyone that's just genuinely curious and thinks we didn't deep dive enough, which I think we, I honestly think we definitely went off on some good tangents there, but, you know, on one of the questions, let us know in the comments and maybe we, you know, maybe we can start revisiting some of these if we have questions that people think we, didn't answer fully. No, I think we, uh, I think we beat it from all angles, but I mean, I'm genuinely curious if anyone out there has, has questions either from the, op- the opposition side or, or wants us to deep dive more I'm completely open to any of that. Awesome. Well, again, thank you all listeners from all your backgrounds for giving us the time to listen to this lesson here as we close it out for the day. So as always, please make sure to come to us, subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Make sure to throw comments to us so we can get back to you and help educate you and get you closer to Christ and closer to understanding the Catholic Church and what it is and what it isn't so that we can make sure to kind of break down all of those uh, misnomers or false impressions that we see when we watch people that claim to be Catholic and they don't display any of the stuff we've just talked about. So we understand. We all have seen all that to get to this point. So please make sure to give us comments so we can help you out and clarify anything that uh, may otherwise be missed. So again, thank you for listening, everybody. And as always, St. Joseph, pray for us.